Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, July 17th, 2005, show number one. Today's topics are cryptography and geek dating tips. Here's your host, Jim Vance. Welcome to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm your host, Jim Vance. Today we have Robert Raplin with us discussing the finer points of cryptology, cryptography. Hi there. Greetings. How do we define cryptography, which I can't even say properly? Cryptography is basically just any way of taking something that's readable and converting it to something that's unreadable so that it could be transported and then converted back to something readable when you get to the other side. It has a very long history. Julius Caesar did a basic substitution cipher. But today we use computers to encrypt things with ridiculously high numbers in extremely complicated ways using things called trapdoor algorithms so that it's real easy to go in one direction but takes years and years if you want to go the other direction and you don't happen to know the secret. It also has applications in something called cryptographic signatures where you can put a code onto a piece of uh, a message that specifically says that this person and this person alone is the person who actually wrote that message, or at least they signed it. Okay, since you obviously lost me at Julius Caesar, let's just say I have an email. I don't want anybody else in the world to read this email. How do I apply cryptography to solve my problem? Standard email encryption these days starts by the cre- with the creation of a public and private key pair. This is two keys that are prime numbers of a ridiculously long length. If you hear 128-bit encryption, then that's 128 bits worth of prime number. But the private member of this key pair is held by the individual who creates it, and he should protect that like he protects the best of his passwords. The public key of this pair is handed out to essentially the entire world. Usually, though, they will give it to something called an authority, and the authority's job is to say, yeah, Joe Schmo gave me this key. This is definitely his key. I'm absolutely certain of this. And if you, as long as you trust the authority, then you can trust that that is that person's key. So what happens is that when you want to send an email to this specific Joe Schmo, you'll have your program use that key to encrypt the letter you want to send to him, And then you send the encrypted version to him. He gets this letter from you, and he has the private key. The fun thing about public and private key encryption is that if you encrypt something with the public key of a public-private key pair, then only the private key can decrypt it. So since he's the only one who has that private key, he's the only one who can read that email. Even you, with the public key, can't decrypt that email if you wanted to. Conveniently, you know what it says, so you don't have to. Very nice. All of a sudden, I'm feeling like we're going into swordfish territory here. And speaking of that, I've heard a few terms thrown around into this realm. Cipher and hash. What are ciphers and hashes? Well, a cipher is what I was just describing there. It's a way of turning something into a form that's unreadable to the rest of the world, but which can be converted back into its readable form by the person with that private key. A hash is a little bit different. A hash is kind of like a signature. If I have this private key and I'm the only person who has this private key, you can pass a text and the key through an algorithm and get a specific set of characters, and those characters are specifically called the hash. 
that only you could have possibly created. Let's say I write a declaration that such and such a person is a big doo-doo head. And I want everybody to know that it was definitely me who said that. I'll pass this message and my key through the hash, and anybody with a public key can verify, yes, I'm the only person who possibly could have created that hash from that text. And this is, this is kind of equivalent to a typical signet ring that kings and whatever used to use to press into wax, because since they were the only ones who had that signet ring, they are then the only people who could have made that impression in the wax and sealed that letter. So with the hackers and the crackers and everything out there these days, are either ciphers or hashes crackable? Um, ciphers are crackable through extreme expenditures of computing power. Bruce Snyder, who is one of the greatest security experts in the nation, likes to state that there are two types of encryption. There are encryption that will keep your little sister from reading something, and then there is encryption that will keep large national governments from reading something. And there's really not a whole lot of in-between. If you encrypt something with enough bits, and when I mean enough bits, the bit length of an encryption, be it 128 or 64 or whatever, I've seen it all the way up to 4096. For every bit you add, it doubles the length of time it takes to crack something. If you're just using a short, typical thing that's passed around with, uh, with your browser, then yeah, it's crackable. It's been demonstrated that 56-bit encryption that, that is distributed with browsers is trivially crackable by anybody with uh, a few million dollars to throw around to build a machine to do it. But if you encrypt something with an adequate bit length, then it's not going to happen before the heat death of the universe. Now, hashes are a little bit different. When you pass the text and your key through the hashing algorithm, it produces something that is not designed to be converted back into the original text. In fact, it specifically loses information. Kind of like with numerology, where everybody's all the letters correspond to a specific number, 1 through 9. You add up all the numbers in somebody's name and all the corresponding numbers to the letters in someone's name and you get a specific number and then you add all the digits in that number together and you come up with a number one through nine. There's, what, four and a half billion people on this planet and every single one of them has a name that can be reduced down to a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine. There's no way on earth you can take a seven and determine which person's name was used to derive that. That's basically how hashes work. There's just not enough information in a hash to derive the original text from it. Interesting. Interesting. So how exactly pervasive has cryptology become and what are we using it for in this modern world of secrets, lies, videotape? <laughs> Cryptography is used anytime you don't want somebody to know what your credit card number is, what your password is when you're online. Anytime you shop for something at Amazon and buy it, you're making a cryptographic link between your browser and their uh, sales engine in order to pass it your purchasing information. Anytime you're hooking into an ATM machine, it probably encrypts the information in order to get it back to the bank and then get the okay back. It is ubiquitously used for monetary purposes. It's often used in businesses. 
Most of you have heard about VPNs, virtual private networks. This allows you to take an entire large network and call into it, and you get the same security between that computer and the network as you would as, as if you were just inside the network itself because the pipeline between you and that network is encrypted. So how secure is it in reality? I mean, are we talking about something that anybody can use and nobody can crack? Is it something that there are people monitoring and watching daily just trying to crack it because they have a thrill-seeking? Really, the weak link in most cryptography isn't the cryptographic algorithms, it isn't the math, it isn't these very high numbers. It's usually the people who blindly hand out their passwords to some guy who calls them and says that they're from tech support and they're trying to solve a problem and could you please type your password in at this place and let me know what all the letters are as you're typing them. Or people who respond to phishing messages where you get an email saying, hey, your account is about to explode. Please log in here and let us know that you're okay. And you're actually logging into someone else's site so that when you type in the numbers, you're handing over your password to the person. This is called social engineering. And it is by far an easier way of cracking cryptography than the actual cryptographic algorithms. So flexing my big brains on white bread, won't quantum computing make all this crackable in the end? Mm, not really. One of the problems that they're currently having with quantum computing is that you're working with something called qubits. A qubit is one of those mysterious quantum states of a subatomic particle. Like, for instance, electrons have something called spin. That's what causes magnetism. When you have all the electrons have their spin in the same direction, that's the direction the magnetic field goes. One of the funny things about quantum mechanics is that even though an electron has either positive or negative spin, anytime you're not actually looking at it, it actually has the entire continuum between that positive and negative spin, all in at the same time. They, they can use this to quickly factor these extremely high prime numbers. And when I mean factor, if you take 15, its factors are 3 and 5. Prime numbers are things for which their only factor is 1. So if you're going through a space of numbers, in order to find the prime numbers in that space, you got to factor every single one of them. For any particular number in that space, factoring it can take minutes or hours before you can determine that, yes, it really only has that one factor. But if you have quantum computing, you can immediately find out, yep, it only has one in a single instant, in a single action. So this will significantly decrease the speed at which we can find a specific prime number within a field because the actual stepping through them takes considerably less time. However, and this is a big however, in order to factor a prime number, you have to have as many qubits as you have bits in that prime number. And then some. I say and then some because I've seen some reports that say you need twice as many plus two. But I happen to know that the largest quantum computer that's ever been built in the entire world was built in the year 2000. And it has a grand total of seven qubits. And it could factor the number 15 which takes four bits. By the times two plus two, it should take 10. So basically, we're going to need, in order to factor a 512-bit prime number, we would need 
something around a thousand qubits on a quantum computer. So as long as you're using a key that's larger than the uh, largest quantum computer that we can build, you're pretty safe. And as it stands, we have no clue how to build a quantum computer larger than seven because we can't stabilize those qubits before we pass the algorithm into it in the first place. Well, since it seems that the only people who would probably be wanting to do something like this would be our post-9-11 lovely tree-hugging, you know, we love everybody and want to be <laughs> open, open record government, why, why is it they hate the encryption world so much? What's their, what's their malfunction? Because they want to know everything. This is something I could sympathize with. There's a point at which you have to start considering personal privacy. They don't like the concept that somebody can send an email, whether it's a piece of spam or a plan to ship cocaine or a uh, plan to kill the president, and send it to someone else and they won't be able to read it because it just might be that plan to kill the president. So encryption stops the carnivore program and such from functioning. It stops the carnivore program. Carnivore is entirely dependent upon their ability to read in plain text everything that goes through there. If it takes 37 years to decrypt each individual message that goes through, then they're obviously never going to be able to sneak into your email. Now, one of the, one of the things about, that does allow carnivore to work is that any time you're passing email around, you're sending the data equivalent of a postcard. Anybody along the route your email goes can just open the thing up and read the whole thing and then pass it on. There's no security whatsoever. But once you apply encryption, if you apply a, a adequate level of encryption, then it's pretty much safe even from the national government's prying eyes, simply because they can't decrypt every single message that goes through just because. So why don't they just ban it? Why don't they use the not the, the Patriot Act or, say, if it's another government who seems to be a little bit more restrictive on life itself, why don't they just ban encryption? Why don't they just say, you know what, no good? They no would job. like to do that, but they can't for the simple reason that commerce requires it. If you don't have encryption, you don't have web stores. A lack of encryption would destroy Amazon, it would destroy eBay, it would destroy so many of the internet businesses that our economy is now so dependent on. You just couldn't do it. Even bank mechanisms like ATMs would suddenly become an extremely dangerous way of passing things around. You couldn't have credit card purchasing at malls because that in, your credit card information is encrypted before it gets sent to the bank and the okay gets returned. All of this would have to go away. They've tried several things to uh, mitigate it, like uh, KeyBank. KeyBank was a particularly dumb idea where they wanted to create a form of encryption where any time an encryption key was created, you had to pass basically a trapdoor key to the government so that if they just felt like getting into it, they could happily crack your encryption in a few seconds because you handed them the key to your stuff. This is roughly equivalent to the U.S. government having the combination to every vault, every safe in the entire United States. This, uh, this obviously went over like a lead balloon. Excellent. Well, that's a good thing to hear, I suppose. This was uh, enlightening, to say the least. I now feel like my brain has personally expanded at least you know, 15 to 25 percent, and I think I'm going to go encrypt something now. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Thank Excellent you. information. Beauty is one of life's most poorly understood concepts, right up there next to love. 
It is applied to such a wide range of subjects, art and mathematics, biology and tactics, and a plethora of other concepts, that it's difficult to see how they could all be related. And yet they are, simply because man can perceive them. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and it is by perceiving a subject that we find beauty within it. But what are we seeing? Human forms are beautiful as they approximate our ideals. Paintings, sculpture, and the classical arts coax forth our emotions. Dance and music present symmetries and patterns that please our senses, and this is the dawning of our understanding. Fractals, mathematical in nature, yet splendorous in form, draw the eye because of repetition that is both blatant yet unpredictable. It is the patterns which draw our eye and attract our ears, defining their own sense internally, and yet still echoing something deep within our souls. Dance similarly reflects our leaps of joy and depths of grief, performed in graceful arcs, lines, and curves. The classical arts also reflect the known, whether it's the detailed physiology of Rodin, the misplaced elements of Picasso, or the abstract chaos of Pollock. In all of these, we find a correspondence within our experience evoking emotions, pensive consideration, and awestruck wonder. Even our appreciation of the human form itself is based on a comparison to our personal ideal. When you ponder the entire world of things that humans consider beautiful, how we recognize and perceive that beauty, we come to finally realize that beauty is pattern recognition. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm your host, Jim Vance. Moving into the second segment, we'd like to work on the topic of dating tips for geeks. My guest is Tiffany Raplin, our local resident who can teach us why geeks can actually date and have a social life, yet still be a geek. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you, Jim. So, Tiffany, why are we doing dating tips for geeks exactly? Well, we're doing dating tips for geeks so that we can target it a different audience than what most of the dating tips out there are targeting. So we're going less with the mainstream and more with the geek. Do the geeks need a tremendous amount of help, I presume? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, maybe, maybe not necessarily need in all cases, but probably want in a lot of cases. And the reason I say that is because geeks tend to have habits and ways of interacting with other people that are not necessarily mainstream. So they call for a non-mainstream solution. And what type of solutions typically will a geek need comparative to, say, your average, you know, quarterback? You know, for the quarterback, to discuss, first of all, what's out there. I've done a lot of research on this in the last couple years and, and a lot recently. And what I'm finding out there is that the advice is often of poor quality, kind of falls into three categories. One of the categories is targeted at women. Apparently, a lot of people feel as if only women need dating advice, so which is sort of interesting. And then one of the other categories is from, and this from the perspective of the person offering the advice, is, hey, you pay me a bunch of money and I'm not going to tell you what I'll give you, but it'll be good. I promise you it'll be good. And so you see a lot of internet sites targeted at men in the mainstream type of dating tips 
that, you know, I have no idea what's on those sites. I, I suspect it's not terribly useful. If it was if it was that good, they wouldn't need to be drawing people in and not giving any indication of what out, what is out there. And then the rest of it is sort of your Cosmo for women and your Maxim for men, where, as you said, the quarterback. It's, it's targeting someone who is definitely not a geek, who has a lot of self-confidence in face-to-face social situations. And I don't think that that's necessarily the advice that's good for geeks. So this is more the advice for people who are maybe not as comfortable with face-to-face interactions, who maybe are better interacting if they can write it down, email, IM, that sort of thing, sort of help them build the confidence in person. So we're talking about real-world dating tips versus dating for dummies 101, which doesn't even begin to cover geeks, let alone proper dating concepts. Right. And, and actually, the dating tips for dummies is written by a woman, and it's mostly targeted at women, from what I could tell. So even that one isn't really going to help the geeks. Why exactly do you care about geeks getting dates? I mean, where, where does the, the geek world fit your desire to help them? Well, where that fits is that, first of all, I'm a geek girl. So this is, in some ways, it's selfish. I'm, I'm a geek girl, and I want to help those people who are within my class, which is the class of geeks. It's also the case that I really like geeks. And the reason that I really like geeks is, first and foremost, I know a lot of them, and, and I've interacted with a lot of them in professional and personal scenarios. And they tend to be generally really nice people. And so I'd really rather help somebody like that than, for instance, the target audience of Cosmo or Maxim, your, you know, kind of rude asshole type of guy. I don't care if he gets laid. I don't care if he gets dates. But the geeks are nice people, and I'd like to see them happy. I'd like to see them getting laid, getting dates, getting all of that kind of thing. So it's it's really just sort of a pet project. It's also the case that I have a lot of friends who are geeks who have from time to time asked me for advice and, and I thought, well, if I'm going to be handing out advice, maybe I should do a little research and try to give good advice. And as long as I'm at it, let's put it all in one place so they can all read it all in one place or listen to it as the case may be all in one place. And so it's it's also so that I don't have to repeat myself. So no geek bordellos, no Heidi Fleiss, no... <laughs> This is this is legitimate dating tips. <laughs> legitimate dating tips, yes. Uh, no Heidi Fleiss. I'm not trying to make money off of this. And, and it's also legitimate in the sense, um, one of the sites that I located that's an older site, looks like it's out of use, was by a person who was claiming to provide geek dating tips. But this individual was actually providing really sarcastic, obnoxious not very nice advice and and it wasn't intended to be advice it was intended to make fun of geeks and that's not what this is about that's not what i'm trying to do that's good to hear so now let's say hypothetically i'm actually a geek okay so i am what are the uh steps i can take to become a desirable geek in the geek world of dating i'll offer three pieces of advice it's actually sort of a three-step process and, and this is just to start. But the first step, I would say, is that you need to figure out your own strengths and weaknesses. And, and this is really important, and it's, it's critical that you're honest with yourself. You need to be very brutal and very honest and figure out what are you good at and what are you not good at. And if these are questions that you're not good at answering for yourself, then find a friend, a good friend, who will be brutally honest with you and who will give you that information. So that's the first step, is be honest with yourself and figure out you know, what are you good at, what are you not good at. And then the second step is figure out what you want. And again, you need to be honest here. 
So you need to figure out, are you looking for somebody to date long term? Are you looking for just a friends with frills? What are you looking for? And be honest. And the reason that these first two steps, that it's so important to be honest, is that if you can't even be honest with yourself, you're not going to be able to be honest with another person. And, and honesty really is fundamental to any kind of relationship, dating, you know, marriage, obviously. And, and even if it's just a purely sexual relationship, again, honesty is, is very important. So then the third piece, and this is where we tie those two in, is that you need to find and go to places where you can put the strengths that you identified in the first step into use and where you're going to be able to interact with people from the second step who are what you're looking for. And this doesn't necessarily have to be on in person. That's another one of the things that I found in the research that I was doing is that a lot of therapists feel that any kind of online dating, any type of gaming, any interaction online is not valid. And so they will, they will tell you if you're sitting at a computer, you're not dating and you're not meeting people and you're not playing and all this other crap. And in fact, that is valid. In the geek world, it is valid. So going places and meeting people can in fact also be online, although ideally eventually you meet in person. Okay. So where is a good geek location to gather? Say you want to be social, you want to be out there amongst people, but you're timid. You know you're timid. You don't like to approach people. Where's a good place to go? Where's a good place to start becoming a little bit more used to the idea of being a social geek? Probably a good place to start is to to do something first, is identify, you know, based on what you're good at. You want to find some place where you can you're going to be able to show that you're good at something, or it can also be that you're really interested in something. You've done your research. Let's say that um, you're really into biking. You decide to join one of these clubs, like singles clubs or whatever, or even just an informal social group where you can go and you can socially bike with other people. Same thing if it's if it's rock climbing. Um, but then you have some more kind of common, comfortable geek realms like you know your conventions, science fiction conventions, um, a lot of the literary conventions, or they could be you know the fan conventions. One caution I have to make there though is that you could very well end up in a long distance relationship, so you need to be you need to be aware of that possibility since a lot of people will travel to a city in order to attend a convention. On the other hand, you're surrounded by a lot of geeks. You're really among your own social class, which tends to make communications a little bit easier. And and I would say that at least to start to be in situations where you can be most comfortable and surrounded by more people who are like you, the better off because you'll be able to gain your confidence slowly. And then anywhere that you go, you know, whatever your interests are, one of the things that you need to to do when you go to these places is, or when you select the places rather, is find places where there's sort of enforced socialization. What I mean by this is where socializing is the norm. You're expected to talk to other people. That's not the case at some place like a bar. These, you know, face bars or or whatever, where people go and they know they don't have to talk to you and you don't have to talk to them and nobody wants to talk to anybody else. You're just sort of there to see and be seen. And that's not the best environment if you're trying to sort of get your feet under you and get your bearings and be able to start talking with people because you're more likely to be shot down. In fact, you're, you're very likely to be shot down just because you might shock people by actually talking to them, which is just one of the horrible things about bars, that people go there, but then it's you're sort of set up for failure because people, once you talk to them, know that they don't have to speak to you and can snub you and can be very rude. 
So I would say definitely go somewhere where the socialization is enforced. And that's, you know, conventions are great for that, but that's why I also say if you join some type of a club or informal social group where you can engage in an activity with other people, ideally other people who are single, but it wouldn't have to be. It could be just with a bunch of people join a gaming group, um, role-playing gaming, that kind of thing. And in those cases, you're expected to talk with people. And so when you do talk to people, they're not going to necessarily freak out and snub you. So a... Image makeover with the Armani Exchange going to your local martini bar. Out. 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 You know, the thing about the local martini bars is that it it just doesn't matter how good you look and and how big it looks like your paycheck is and how nice your car is. You're, You're probably not going to have satisfying social interactions, at least at first. I mean, maybe you will. Maybe... Maybe you're looking for a gold digger and, and you just really want to get laid that night. And in that case, sure, the Armani suit, the convertible, the dropping money on the floor, buying free drinks for everyone may get you laid. So if that's what you're looking for and you're honest, then hey, that's fine. But if you're looking for something longer term or looking to practice your skills just interacting with people, that's not the best place. Now, would you be promoting the idea of strictly geek love, geeks sticking with geeks? Or are we talking about geeks can actually land somebody outside of their social circle? Well, geeks can land people outside their social circle. And I'd say if that's what you're looking for, that's fine. With me, I prefer to stick with geeks. Although I do have non-geek friends. And let's let's just say that we interact on different levels. And that's and that's totally fine. But when it, for me personally, when it came to finding a mate, definitely I went geek. Even though at the time I didn't know that's what I wanted. But I went geek. And ever since then, I, I just find geeks to be hot. So that's my opinion but I definitely see a lot of couples where you have one geek and one non-geek and they're happy and I see couples where you have two geeks together and they're happy I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to stay within the geek circle but I think in some ways it might be easier so where where are you gonna go with this where's what's the plan Well, the plan is to try to provide advice that is useful, that is concrete each time. Geek dating tips will repeat, although it's certainly not going to be the show every time. So, But from time to time, we will revisit geek dating tips. And we're also interested in either input, feedback, suggestions, ideas from our listeners. And so that you can provide on the website. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Tiffany. I appreciate the input and advice. Now that I've written down some notes, I think I'm going to go find myself a gaming circle and start (laughs) trying to date. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Initiating shutdown secrets. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Rapplin. Music selection by Eric Murphy. The music for the credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is A Jetpack in Hand by Subatomic Glue. The music for the interlude is Zombie Princess by Subatomic Glue. The music for the second segment is June by Roa. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you to never run with scissors. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Unk Infinity production.